The Gist is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring? Thanks to ZipRecruiter.com, you can post to more than 100 job sites with a single click and have the highest chance of finding that perfect candidate. Plus, be instantly matched to candidates from over 6 million resumes. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash gist. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, September 24th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, Pope, Pope Palooza, Pope Lopa Ding Dong. The Pope has hit D.C. and New York today. The Pope. It's fun to say Pope, Pope, Pope. One day I want to say Pontiff on first reference. That day is not today. Damn. Pope, 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 Pope. Francis named himself after St. Francis of Assisi, humble, poor, loved animals. So here now, in the spirit of the Pope and the love of animals, I want to update you on a story concerning the love of animals. It mentions the love of a deceased animal, and in a way that the animal was not meant to be loved. On the show the other day, I mocked the New York Post for being especially explicit in its coverage of the surely untrue allegation that British Prime Minister David Cameron, while at Oxford, porked a pig, inserted his genitals into the mouth of the pig. So the allegation went, because college is crazy, because pig underpants were a thing in England back then. I don't know. I'm just sure it didn't happen, right? But the Post's headline was, David Cameron is accused of sticking his penis in a dead pig's mouth. All right. I thought, I said then, I say it now, that, that's a little on the snout. But then today, the New York Times had an op-ed that went entirely and overly in the other direction. Here was the headline. The prime minister did what with a pig's head? Now, first of all, I'd say to a pig's head. We wouldn't want to imply collaboration, let alone consent. But here's the broader question with the Times story. It never answers the question. When you raise a question like that, perhaps you need to answer it. I sense the author of the op-ed, Hari Kunzru, agrees. He decried, quote, what the British tabloid press with fake prudishness likes to call a sex act on a dead pig's head. But then Harry doesn't call it anything else. I mean, maybe you could say he's saying that he has genuine prudishness. That's why he doesn't call it anything else, not this fake prudishness. Also, again, I got to go back to this phrase on the dead pig's head. It was not on the pig's head. It was in the pig's head. But of course, the big thing is it never happened, right? It never happened. So let's not write about it. Let's not consider the social context or the historical antecedents or the class implications. I just, I came away from reading that thinking England is a really weird place, let me tell you. And today I am proud to be an American. I'm Joni Ernst. I grew up castrating hogs on an Iowa farm. So when I get to Washington, I'll know how to cut pork. Oh, yeah, Joni Ernst, her. Well, let me then at least take comfort in the fact that in the U.S. we're always vowing to take the pork out of politics, and in England they're spending more time putting the politicians into pork. On the show today, I make the world's most seamless transition to His Holiness Pope Francis. I will spiel about the question, who in Congress is actually a good Catholic? But first, Obamacare. A new report shows that deductibles have spiked, rising faster than salaries have since 2010. But how is the law doing otherwise? It's time for a checkup. There are a lot of complex issues in the news, and I'll tell you what I'm good at and what I'm bad at. 
The Iranian deal, I read the whole thing. Let's just say my eyes fell on every page. Don't understand the, all the ins and outs of uranium, but I think I'm pretty well versed on that. Overall, Israel peace, I mean, I see why it's hard. I know who is affiliated with the Sunnis. I know who's affiliated with the Shia. So I'm pretty good on a lot of the complexities of the world. Here's where I'm pretty bad. I'm just really bad on evaluating claims about Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. And maybe it's because I read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and man, are they just either looking at two different set of facts or more likely from two very different prisms. And of course, when you evaluate the political candidates, it's either the greatest thing that ever happened to this country or the worst thing. So I want to cut through some of the claims and talk to an expert, as we do from time to time, with Philip Galwitz, who's a senior correspondent with Kaiser Health News. Hello, Philip. Hi there. Hello. So I think one of the benchmark measures, sure, there was a lot of arguing around the edges. Did this website work or not? But look, Obamacare has been in effect for how long now? The law was passed in 2010. The major provisions to help people get coverage started in January of 2014. Right. So there are a lot of claims around the law, but I always interpret it as the number one thing it would do. And I don't think the president lied or misled about this. The number one thing it would do is bring down the number of uninsured. Has it done that? And from what to what? Sure. It's done that dramatically. I think even proponents of the law are, are amazed when they look at the, uh, the rates today compared to where they were before. The latest Gallup polls, which measures nationally as well as in states, uh, the latest rate um, in the middle of this year was about 11%. That was down from about 18% at the end of 2013. So that's a very substantial drop. In other words, 11% in the recorded history of, of checking how many people are uninsured, we've never been that low. So Paul Krugman, a big defender of the law, wrote about this, and he said that we're 80% of the way there with Obamacare. Now, I saw the, all those stats. I'm like, well, I don't, I'm not getting above 50, but here's what he argues. He says, look at a realistic benchmark. And he says, let's look at Massachusetts. Romney Care has been in an operation for almost a decade and still has 5% of adults aged 18 to 64 uninsured, probably about half undocumented immigrants and half eligible residents who fall through the cracks. Two questions. Is that an industry standard just to realize that they will never get below a certain threshold, perhaps around 5%? Or did Paul Krugman sort of invent it? And then the second part of the question was, if he invented it, is it a fair threshold? I think it's fair to say it would be, I think, I think everybody would agree that to get the uninsured down to zero uh, would be you know, almost impossible. And that's because of a couple of things. The great expansions with the ACA, which was two things. One, expanding Medicaid, which is the state federal health insurance program for the poor. That was expanded. Uh, states that had the option to not expand it, but that was one big part of the expansion. The other part was giving Americans who were not eligible for Medicaid, giving them subsidies to help them buy private insurance on these new Obamacare insurance exchanges or marketplaces. So those were the two main areas to help cover the uninsured. But not everybody was eligible for those. Not everybody was eligible for subsidies. And that includes um, illegal immigrants were not eligible. And that's you know, a couple million people in the United States are going to fall into that. There's also people who their incomes were above the threshold, which was four times the poverty rate, which is about dollars $55, $55,000. If you're above that level, you don't get any financial help to buy health insurance. So those people didn't get any help. And you also have some people who just say, you know what, I don't want to buy insurance. I'd rather pay the penalty. There's now a penalty if you don't buy insurance. You have to 
pay the government a couple hundred dollars a year or a percentage of your income. So there's some people who say, you know what, I just don't want insurance. I'm never going to buy it. I don't want it. I'm not going to do it. So you're always going to have all these populations who were not going to buy it. So I think in some ways, Paul Krugman is very right. We were never going to get down to zero. If we could get it down to 5%, that would be a great victory. And as, as, as the numbers with Gallup show, we're down to 11%. And a lot of people are saying this is huge. All right. So we've quoted Paul Krugman. Let's quote Sally Pipes on the exact opposite side of the issue, wrote a book called What's Wrong with Obamacare. And she's the president of the Pacific Research Institute. And she focuses on state-run, state-based insurance exchanges. I'll quote from her this year, was supposed to be the first when state-based insurance exchanges would be self-sufficient. Hasn't worked out that way. Two of the original 17 state exchanges have failed. Half of those remaining are struggling financially. She talked about New York and California. Golden State's exchange faces an $80 million deficit. New York's exchange is floundering. Governor Andrew Cuomo tried to impose a $69 million fee on all insurance plans sold in the state to fund the state's exchanges. So let's talk about this whole issue. What were the state exchanges and are they really doing as badly as uh, pipes paints? The bottom line is most of them have done pretty well, uh, even signing up the the, uh, people in their states. I'll give one example. Oregon, when they first started, they had huge problems with their website. It didn't work. They had to sign up everybody in their first year basically using paper and pen, which people thought, oh, my God, how are they using paper and pen to sign up? Turned out Oregon had one of the best success rates at signing up one of the highest rates of people who should have gone through the exchanges, people wanting to buy private insurance. At the end of the day, they did pretty well in signing people up. Yes, their website didn't work initially, and then after year one, they decided to turn over their reins to the federal government to let the federal government run their exchange. But even though their website didn't work, they were still able to sign up a large percentage of people who needed to go through the exchange. Yes, there have been a number of exchanges have are facing some financial issues. This is not totally surprising because they're sort of being weaned off the federal dollar because they, they got a, a, a lot of funding as they were set up and the funding to be around for the first year. And after the first year, after 2014, they were supposed to be self-sustaining. It's turning out that the money they're raising is not enough to, uh, to cover all their costs. I think people have to realize, even if the states fail and they are turning it over their results over to the federal exchange, well, the federal exchange is working. Healthcare.gov worked very well last year. It was a lot of news two years ago, and Healthcare.gov got off to a very bad start, and it was the pun of every late-night joke, and it probably deserved every one of them. But last year, Healthcare.gov had a great year. Some of the big states that rely on Healthcare.gov, uh, particularly Florida, soar huge increases in the number of people signing up. So even if the states do falter and they fall back and, and, they, and they have to fall back to, to the federal exchange, the average consumer is not going to see a big change. So what about California? Is it, is it in crisis? Is it a big problem that it's running a deficit? I guess because they want to have enough money where they can do a couple things. They want to have enough money to do marketing, to get the word out for people who still haven't signed up, to get people to sign up. They want to have enough money so they can have a support system in place to walk people through the process of signing up for insurance. Because a lot of people that are signing up have never had insurance before. They don't understand the need for insurance. So they need money to do this administration to do that. And they've had some issues raising it up. Most states are getting the money to run the exchanges by taking a percentage of how much people pay in on the premium. So if you're paying in $100 a month, states may take 3 or $4 of that and put it toward the administration of the exchange. What's happening is states are having a little difficulty raising enough money 
to then have enough to uh, support the administration. But, I, I, you know, I think the states are still doing okay. I mean, I think if we, if we see a, a big downturn in, in how much enrollment goes in certain these states, I think people should be concerned. But right now, you know, I, as far as a consumer issue, I think there's a lot bigger other consumer issues to be concerned about than will their state exchange survive or not. Three months ago, the New York Times had an article about Vermont holding up Vermont as, you know, one of the most liberal states in the country. And they were talking about frustrations over the ACA. And uh, they quoted a representative of the Progressive Party talking about it being a spectacular crash. We've gone from this vision of being the first state to achieve universal health care to limping along and struggling to comply with the Affordable Care Act. What does Vermont have to tell us? Well, put it in perspective. Vermont, again, in the latest Gallup polls, is Vermont has about 8% of its uh, population that doesn't have health insurance. Uh, granted, not everybody who's going through the exchange is uninsured. These could be people who are, maybe they've had insurance before, they need to buy insurance. So, but in terms of the uninsured, Vermont is, you know, 8% is a, of a relatively small state is a pretty small number. We're talking about a couple hundred thousand people, if that, are going through the exchange. So they've run into problems. Initially, Vermont wanted to go through a big single-payer system, which would be dramatically different from what we have now. They're realizing they don't have the money for that. I'm not sure there's no political will for that. Yeah, so Vermont is one of several states where they're trying to get a hold of their expenses and trying to maybe share some, what, what a lot of states like Vermont and some other states want to do, is share some expenses with the federal government. Maybe they don't have to do everything. Maybe they can rely on the federal government to pick up some of their services that the, that the exchange has to do, such as running the website, such as running some of the back office needs that they have to do. Let's talk about the co-ops. What are these? What, what was the idea behind these? It grew out of the need to say that uh, when they debated the Affordable Care Act, several congressmen and talked about that they need to inject more competition into the health insurance market. They said a big reason why people were paying such high rates was because in a number of states and in a number of cities, both uh, health insurers had huge monopolies. And if there was more competition, the competition would do what it always does and help bring down rates. So the federal government decided to inject few hundred millions of dollars to basically form some new nonprofit health insurance companies to compete with some of the existing, mostly for-profit insurance companies. But they only came up with enough money to do this in about half the states. And they call these co-ops because they're, they're nonprofit, and in a sense they're owned by their own beneficiaries, and the beneficiaries have to be the majority of the board of directors of each of these health insurance companies. So they formed these uh, co-ops a couple of years ago, and they started in 2014, 25 of them. Three have now either gone out of business or said they don't have enough money to keep sustaining it, and they plan to roll back. So three out of 25 have left. I don't think anybody really expected all 25 to survive, but now that three have gone, or have gone out of business or are about to go out of business, there's some question. But to some degree, the co-ops have done what people wanted them to do. They, in many respects, gave this extra competition, and in many states, the co-ops had the lowest prices. And what that did was that forced some of the existing insurers to lower their prices so they wouldn't lose uh, members. So in some respects, the co-ops achieved what they wanted to do was more competition in the market. In these three states, uh, in many cases, they will be missed. But in the other states, uh, they're still going. Might we see more go out of business? That's a possibility. Not all that shocking. Starting a new health insurance company from scratch is a risky proposition, even with some federal support. And when that federal support ended, 
clearly they not not all of them were going to make it. Where's Obamacare failing to live up to its promise in the most pronounced ways? A lot of people say one of the big areas where it, it could do better is in controlling overall health care costs. But guess what? Healthcare costs are going up at the slowest rate in, in over three decades. So right now we're seeing this great expansion of, of people with health care coverage. The uninsured has dropped off dramatically. Employer health care costs, which is where you know, a lot of Americans get their coverage, we're waiting to see what the numbers go up. But those have been remaining in the single digits. I mean, the concern is that we, we you know, and the concern is still in the future, we may see health care costs return in uptick. So that's a concern for the future. Yes, there have been some small areas. Some of the exchanges face some issues, as you mentioned, in their sustainability. But they do have a federal government as a fallback. The co-ops, 25 of them reformed. Three have gone out of business. There is some concern about that. But I think in the big scheme of things, you know, it's, it's been a relatively uh, successful uh, rollout at this stage. Philip Galwitz, senior correspondent with Kaiser Health News. Thank you, Philip. You're welcome. So if you're a business owner, you know that your company is only as good as the people you hire. And when you're short-staffed, there's no time to deal with all the different job sites. Isn't that the irony? When you need help most is when you're most pressed for time. Hmm, I wonder if there's a website that can help. Oh, yes, there is. It's ZipRecruiter.com. You can post to 100-plus job sites with a single click. And then you have the highest chance to find the perfect candidate, or at least the guy that's going to help until you find the perfect candidate. Let me read a brief testimonial. The recruiting process used to be so painful. Before, I'd post to several places, get a million resumes, but only a few responses from qualified candidates. It was torture, but with ZipRecruiter, we posted once and got qualified candidates in one easy-to-review place. We hired some of our best employees using ZipRecruiter. Yep, plus... You can instantly be matched to candidates from over 6 million resumes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash gist. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash gist. And now the spiel, consistent Catholics. Pope Francis stood before Congress today, and in a speech, he showed all these public service with their teeth whitening and their slickness. He showed him what it takes to be the guy who's called, quote, the most compelling figure in the world right now. Pontifex, take it to the bridge. The golden rule also reminds us of our responsibility to protect and defend human life at every stage of its development. So that sentence, by the way, was the only mention he made of abortion. I do have to say, if Trump is calling Jeb low energy, I do not see how Pope Francis is going to even come in third in Iowa. Actually, I think the Pope's charisma is a little different from the charisma we're used to. And he used his time in front of Congress to not speak about abortion, but to defend human life by talking about abolishing capital punishment. This conviction has led me from the beginning of my ministry to advocate on different levels the global abolition of the death penalty. The Pope went on to say of the death penalty's abolition, quote, 
I am convinced this way is the best, since every life is sacred, every human person is endowed with inalienable dignity, and society can only benefit from the rehabilitation of those convicted of crimes. The Catholic Church, of course, opposes both the death penalty and abortion. Abortion is a grave sin. Capital punishment is also a sin. It's not in the same category, however. The encyclical addressing capital punishment is more recent. It was Pope John Paul II who declared it all but immoral. A couple of phrases have emerged to describe this dual stance, this pro-life in all areas stance. One is the consistent life ethic. Another is the phrase, the seamless garment. So I wondered, as the Pope addressed Congress, how many members of that august body clamoring to be photographed with the Pope, eager to touch the pontiff, actually live by his teachings? There are 68 Catholic Democrats in the House of Representatives, 70 Catholic Republicans in the Senate. The number of Catholics is 26, 15 Dems, 11 Republicans. How many of these members are anti-death penalty and anti-abortion? Well, none of the Republicans, so far as I can tell, are both pro-life and anti-death penalty. In fact, it's a little complicated because there hasn't been an explicit death penalty vote in a little while to test this, but I could not find a Catholic Republican who is anti-death penalty at all. There was, though, just last week, a key abortion vote to tell us where people stand. Two Democrats broke with their party, but stuck with their faith in opposing abortion. Colin Peterson of Minnesota was one. He voted to defund Planned Parenthood. He is generally pro-life, but he is also pro-death penalty. He's not even a Catholic. He's a Lutheran. The only other Democrat who voted to defund Planned Parenthood is Dan Lipinski of Illinois, the third district in Illinois. He is a Catholic. He taught at Notre Dame for a time. He actually follows church doctrine on abortion. He's the co-chair of the pro-life caucus. But does he oppose the death penalty? I do not know. I cannot for the life of me figure out what his stance is on the death penalty. I contacted his office. I've gotten no answer. I've read the hometown papers. They don't say. I've looked at the voting record. It's unclear. It is possible, and I will report to you once I find the answer, that there is one member of Congress who is a Catholic who is both anti-death penalty and anti-abortion. Well, what about the non-Catholics? Maybe some of them happen to follow Catholic Church teaching, not because it's the teaching, but it's just what they believe. Nope. Everyone who is against the death penalty is also pro-choice. No one is truly pro-life in every sense. Now, Senator Rand Paul has raised questions about his death penalty stance, but he does say it's a matter for the states to decide. And also, while he says he didn't get into public service to pursue social issues like abortion, he also describes himself as, quote, 100% pro-life. It'll be rare to find the good Catholics, the consistent Catholics, in Congress in the future. The national political parties have sorted themselves out ideologically. There used to be dozens and dozens of blue dog Democrats. That was a caucus. They were moderate to conservative Democrats on a lot of issues. Now there are 14 blue dog Democrats. In 2009, for instance, there was something called the Stupak Amendment, named after Bart Stupak, who was a Democrat, who was anti-abortion. The House voted then to disallow funding under Obama. Obamacare for abortions. 64 Democrats supported that vote. Of the 64, NPR recently reported, only 12 remain in Congress. Some, like Stupak himself, retired. Some switched parties. Some lost in re-election. In states, you might find some anti-abortion, anti-death penalty sentiment, not federally. 
There is one interesting, I think, historic side note. About a decade ago, I did a similar accounting. And once again, I could not find a consistent Catholic voting his faith, or rather, the faith is decreed by the Catholic Church. But a then member of Congress, early in his tenure in Congress, who is a representative, was earlier both anti-death penalty and anti-abortion. It was Dennis Kucinich. He has since adopted a pro-choice stance. So is this hypocrisy? Well, it depends which tenants we're talking about. Is it the religious tenants or your job as the representative of a country that believes in a separation of church and state? In fact, you could argue that our elected officials are being good representatives of even their Catholic constituents. Because a vast majority of American Catholics support the death penalty, and only 41% of American Catholics say abortion should be illegal in all or most cases. So do Americans, both the elected and the electors. The Pope is an inspirational, compelling figure who draws large crowds, clogs up traffic, but doesn't necessarily change minds. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi consistently asked the pertinent question, Silvio Berlusconi did what with a garden gnome? Andy Bowers, our executive producer, has been heard to wonder aloud, Stephen Harper stores his penny-farthing bicycle where? The gist, we will not rest until we answer the question, Narendra Modi slathers what condiment on his what before he slowly dips himself into the what now? Or as they call it, slathers his what on the where and the lower what now, Gazi? Um Peru, di Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening.